Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. Well, today we're going to look at chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and it's actually going to be on spiritual warfare. As I said, we're going to look at chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and this is a departure from the subject that we've been covering the last, I think, three or four Saturdays, which was about Christian stewardship. And in this chapter, Paul addresses the whole spiritual warfare topic, a topic that has been sensationalized and made into a primary emphasis of many Christian fellowships and ministries. It is interesting that Paul follows up stewardship with spiritual warfare, even though they're mildly related. I don't know why he did that, but that's kind of an interesting point. That was a joke. Incidentally, before we get going on this, I want to kind of walk you back through the history to see where we've been in terms of the letters to the Corinthians. Primarily because when you go through this stuff week after week and chapter after chapter, it is easy to forget how you got where you are. I illustrate this truth every time I walk out of a grocery store into a parking lot. You just don't remember where you've been, so therefore you don't know where you are. Well, I'm going to go through it with you so you can get a handle on it. You will remember that Paul founded the Corinthian Fellowship and spent nearly two years discipling them. And Paul dearly loved these people and counted them as his spiritual children. And this fellowship was initially very spiritually prosperous. They were passionate in their devotion, and the Spirit of God moved mightily in their midst. However, as I've said before, Corinth was probably one of the most perverse societies, uh, one of the most perverse cities in the then-known world. And most of those who belonged to this congregation were actually raised in that environment, that pagan society. So after a while, carnality crept back in to their behavior, and fleshy behavior, carnality, began to enter into the church. They began to forget who they were in Christ, and worship became religious and secondary to worldly pursuits. They had moved from passion to live in their intimate relationship with Christ to knowing God according to the flesh. They became man-centered in their relationship with God. So Paul gets word of all this going on, or some of what's going on, and he's grieved by this. So he writes them what we call a corrective letter, which we don't have, but he refers to it. And they respond to this corrective letter in 1 Corinthians. They're responding with questions. And he answers those questions, addresses those questions, along with some instruction. And he does that in 1 Corinthians. Then after they received 1 Corinthians, there was some correction, but Paul receives word of a more serious problem that hits the Corinthian church. That is the infiltration of false teachers. 
And uh, these false teachers were seeking to discredit Paul. They were merciless in their slander. They were trying to undermine Paul's teaching and his authority. And in order to accomplish that, they had to take Paul down because the people still loved Paul. Well, they worked on him for a while, and as a result, the people began to lose trust in Paul. So then Paul writes a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and that letter is known as the severe letter. It was an extremely harsh letter addressing the corruption of their church and the following of false teachers. And we don't have that one either, but it's referenced in chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. And it says there, For I wrote to you out of great distress and with an anguished heart, in reference to this letter, and with many tears, not to cause you sorrow, but to make you realize the overflowing love which I have especially for you. And there you see Paul's heart towards him, the Father's heart towards him. I'll reiterate this over and over again. When we read the letters of Paul, it's really I reference Paul. I said, Paul says this, Paul writes that. We need to remember that this is the Father's heart. These words are not just coming from Paul. This is not just an expression of Paul's personality. This is the Father's heart towards these people. And so he writes, I want to make you realize the overflowing love which I have especially for you. And he writes that after he's written this very severe letter. He is pained by it. He's hurt by it. Well, the result of that letter was that the majority of the Christian fellowship repented and were grieved over their treatment of Paul. They reaffirmed Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ. And so we see in chapter 7, Paul's sorrow turned to joy. Then Paul writes his fourth letter, and that is what we know as 2 Corinthians. So if you were confused about the letter of 1 and 2 Corinthians, now you're even more confused. No. You have actually four letters, but you can see the progression of why Paul is writing these letters. What is causing him to take this approach towards the Corinthians? It's important to see that because he's not just pulling topics out of the air. The Spirit of God is literally making him sensitive to what's going on in a city so far away from him. And he is addressing these issues directly. Now, one of the reasons that he writes Second. Corinthians is because there's still unrepentant Corinthians and false teachers hanging around making accusations within the church, even though the majority of the church had repented. So in chapters that we're going to be looking at from this point on, chapters 10 through 13, Paul is addressing this minority and names this confrontation as a spiritual warfare. He calls it that, okay? He literally takes this thing out of the context of the battling between thoughts of men, between ideas of men, between accusations, trading accusations between men. He takes it out of the realm of flesh and he lifts it to where the true battle is going on. He calls it a spiritual, spiritual battle. And this little section is... One of the few sections where you see Paul's perspective on spiritual warfare. And it's very insightful. It's little wonder that the uh, Spirit included it in the text. So, as we've discussed, Paul lived the Christian life the same way Jesus did. He lived it and yielded obedience. 
That is the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived, with Christ as our life. And as we look at what Paul wrote concerning spiritual warfare, we need to view this as the Spirit of God's instruction to us. We live in an age where spiritual warfare is more prevalent than when the ancient temples honoring idols used to cover the hillsides around us. It is actually more invasive than it's ever been. We live in an age when spiritual warfare has become so pervasive that it assaults us and our children and in our homes and in our schools and in our churches, at the job, in the marketplace. It is as insidious as an undetected cancer. It takes life and we don't even see it. This is the warfare that is taking place today. So many Christians go through life glibly living to the flesh, living to their comfort, never recognizing the battle that is being waged, never recognizing the truth of how God intended them to live versus how they are choosing to live. Never seeing the contrast between what the world is calling truth and what God declares as truth. That is where the spiritual war is taking place. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Now I, Paul, urge you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ, I who am meek, so they say, when with you face to face, but bold, outspoken, and fearless toward you when absent. Now, Paul makes it clear that it is with the gentleness and graciousness of Christ that he writes to them. Remember, Paul is just a messenger. And a good messenger doesn't just repeat the message, but conveys the heart behind the message. The Corinthians needed to hear the heart of the Father in Paul's correspondence, not the twisting inferences of these false teachers. Christ is gentle and gracious, but he is never weak or timid. He is courageous, undaunted. Never did Christ tremble before flesh as man, but endured all things with humility and grace. Now this is the life that drives Paul. This is the life that drives you. This is the life that you have. This is why Paul was strong. Paul was strong enough in his conviction of the absolute acceptance and love of his Savior that he could afford to be meek and gentle. You see, the enemy turns the definition of weakness and strength upside down. The idea that strength is flesh being stronger than flesh. The idea of weakness is flesh being weaker than other flesh. That's the enemy's idea. From God's perspective, strength is strength that comes from him. Strength is strength that is established in truth at the center of our being. Strength is made part of who we are. It never wavers. And in this strength and in this faith and in this assurance, I can afford to love. I can afford to be generous. I can afford to be gracious. I can endure insults. I can endure injustice. I no longer have to be self-protecting because He is my strength. Does that mean that I will do all those things? Not necessarily. God does. It doesn't mean that God wants you to endure 
all of the things that the world brings against you. It means that you have the capacity to endure all that the world comes against you with. Paul stands in the strength of the Lord. Look at what Paul writes to young Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment and personal discipline, abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. That's the spirit that you have in you. Is it contrasting to what you're feeling in your emotions, to what you're thinking in your thoughts? Then you are living life out of something other than the spirit that God gave you. Are you walking around in fear of what the world may do to you? Are you living in a timidity of what the world may do or what may come your way? Then you're living in a spirit, something other than the spirit that God gave you. He makes it very clear because Timothy was a young man. He was facing a lot of older, more determined personalities. And he says, look, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. That fearfulness that you may be feeling is not who you are. That's what he's saying. It's not who you are. Now, we agree, right, that we are not bodies with the spirit. So when Paul tells us, as spirits with a body, when Paul tells that God did not give you a spirit of fear, whose spirit is he talking about? He's talking about the spirit he gave you. You see, when you became a Christian, you got a new spirit, a new spirit, and it is not a timid spirit. In fact, timidity comes from literally from the weakness of flesh, a cowardice, a a sense of self-protection. That's where timidity comes from. Now, we're not talking about the whole idea of being belligerent and abrupt, loud, and all those things. You, You imagine the type of person who's always in your face about one thing or another. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a spirit that is strong enough to be able to stand And allow someone else to be weak. That's what Jesus did, right? He's able to stand and allow someone to be weak. This spirit will actually allow somebody to argue a point that you know is totally invalid. Without feeling the need to convince them that they're wrong. How about that? That's what this spirit would do. Doesn't do it every time. But this spirit is not threatened by opinions or arguments. Paul's yielded life as an individual was a window into the truth of God as our, as truth of God, as our life should be. It is the weak who look to control. It is the weak who look to slander. It is the weak who manipulate. It is the weak who look to exploit the weakness of others. And Paul was not weak. What he displayed was the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians five twenty two through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit, the result of His presence within us, and I love that clarification, the result of His presence within us. Now, a branch bears fruit because the life of the vine is within it, right? So the fruit of the Spirit is the result of His presence within us. It is love, that is an unselfish concern for others. It is joy, that is inner peace, patience, not the ability to wait, 
but how we act while we're waiting. That's an interesting delineation. Not the ability to wait, but how we act while we're waiting. I don't know about you, but I can be fairly impatient, right? Well, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. I try to claim that, but it's just not, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature together with its passions and its appetites. What is that saying? It's saying that the sinful nature, the passions and appetites of a sinful nature, are the complete contrast to the fruits of the Spirit. They're completely contrasting. So, verse 25, if we claim to live by the Holy Spirit, we must also... Walk by the Spirit with personal integrity, godly character, and moral courage. Our conduct empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how he's called us to live. That's how Paul lived. In gentleness and graciousness, Paul demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this church at one point denied Paul's authority in their lives. But as he begins this chapter or this section of his letter, he's asserting his apostolic authority. He's asserting himself because an apostle is a messenger of God, and he's asserting himself as a messenger of God. Now, you see the importance of this is because he is taking them the that is the minority, these people who are holding to the false teachers and the people who are leveling all these accusations, they're literally accusing him of being a man without God. He is standing and he's saying, okay, I'm not rebuking you because of what you've said about me as a person. I am not retaliating just because you've insulted me. I am telling you that what I am coming against you with are not my words, but they're God's words. This is a message from God to you. It's very clear. Now, that's important as we look at spiritual warfare, because spiritual warfare never, ever is about flesh fighting spirit. Do you understand? There are two levels of warfare that go on as we understand it. One is physical, fleshy warfare. And it's in all different varieties. It can be in a country coming against another country in true battle. Or it can be just me calling you names. It can be war of thoughts. War of ideologies. War of religion. War of all kinds of things, those are fleshy or carnal wars. And the only weapon that works back and forth, or that is used back and forth in that kind of war, is a carnal, fleshy weapon. We do not use spirit, uh, carnal weapons in a spiritual battle. So Paul is immediately elevating this whole circumstance out of the realm of the carnal, the fleshy, and he is placing it into a spiritual realm. You say, well, I understand that we're talking about an apostle who is defending the church. Don't miss this. This is an apostle defending a church, using that defense, the Spirit of God, using that defense to illustrate what is going on around you on a daily basis 
to illustrate to you how spiritual battles are fought. That's what's going on here. Do not relegate this to some ancient people dealing with some kind of idol worship. That is not the picture. This word is relevant to you through eternity. Okay? So embrace it. So he's reasserting himself. What Paul is writing, he says, I urge you. And that Greek word that he uses there is parakaleo. It, is trans- it can be translated beg. I am begging you to repent, to put an end to your carnality. Some of your translations may have the word meekness. It is to be without anger, resentment, bitterness, a vindictive spirit. It also speaks of someone who will endure wrong and injustice without retaliating. So Paul is telling them, That I am begging you, I'm coming to you with meekness and the meekness of Christ and I am begging you to put an end to this. That's basically what he's saying there. Paul is telling them that his attitude towards them has been a reflection of Christ's attitude towards them. One teacher describes the meekness and gentleness of Christ as a power under control. I like that. Power under control. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.19, he says, For this finds favor. If a person endures the sorrow of suffering unjustly because of an awareness, now get this, if a person endures the sorrow of suffering unjustly because, here's the reason he endures it, because of an, un, of an awareness of the will of God. He endures it because of an awareness of the will of God. He is enduring it because he knows it is the will of God. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, all right, guys, you're going to be a Christian. You need to endure every injustice. That's the definition of being a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that a true Christian stands in his faith and his conviction that it doesn't matter what comes against him. He can stand in injustice or he can stand for justice. It doesn't matter. He stands in the will of God, according to the will of God. This is the, not the endurance of flesh that he's talking about. This is standing in the affirmation of faith, looking to God rather than man for acceptance and love. This is supernatural strength. It is, if we're going to press forward to live by faith, to walk according to the Spirit, if we're going to forsake the image of this world, it will require us to endure. It's going to happen. The carnal and the false teachers saw Paul's gentleness and graciousness as weakness. Why is that? Same reason the world will see it that way when you display it. Because they wrongly defined strength, as I pointed out in the beginning. They defined strength according to the flesh. Paul continues, he says, I who am weak, so they say, when with you face to face, but bold, outspoken, and fearless toward you when absent. Now, Paul's not owning that. Paul's being ironic. He's being sarcastic. Okay? We know that there wasn't really a bolder witness of truth than Paul. There was never a person more apt and willing to confront issues than Paul. So, Paul is really just repeating back the accusations of the false teachers. He's letting them know he's not unaware of what they're saying about him, okay? And he's not afraid to address them. 
So Paul presents himself as meek and humble in person. Look at verse 2. I ask that when I do come, I will not be driven to the boldness that I intend to show those few who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh, like men without spirit. Now Paul returns to asking or begging them, begging these rogue believers. And Paul doesn't want this encounter to be confrontational. Not because he is afraid, but because he carries the Father's heart for these people. Paul desires to express love through meekness and gentleness. And what parent doesn't? I mean, how many of you parents enjoy disciplining your children? I'm not talking about Paul being the actual father, but he's expressing the heart of the father. And he's saying, I don't want to come to you in confrontation. I don't want to deal with you in this way. I want to deal with you in love. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.